0: Thank you for once again joining me in this verse-by-verse Bible study. I'm Randy Duncan, your host, and in this episode, we'll be covering chapter 32, which sees Jacob now on his way home, preparing to once again face his brother Esau. But also, we're going to encounter this strange episode of Jacob wrestling with God. But first, as a reminder, in the last episode, we covered chapter 31, of course, which saw Jacob's showdown with Laban. And after 20 years, finally leaving to return to his homeland. And so with that, we begin chapter 32. Verses 1 through 5 read, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So again, Jacob finally leaves Laban. And as he does, a new era in the life of Jacob and the formation and development of the people of Israel is about to begin. And it tells us that Jacob is met by angels of God. And that's it. Nothing more. No details on what happened or what was said. Now maybe this is just a sign to Jacob of God's promise to protect him, even as he prepares to once again face Esau, when God promised, I will be with you, as well as a reminder to Jacob that he would worship God if God brought him back home safely. But we're told that Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau. Now, this is actually the first time the Bible records a human sending messengers. Because normally, it's God who sends messengers. But the messengers of God are angels, although they appear in human form. So just as God has sent messengers to Jacob, Jacob now sends messengers to Esau. And what is the message they're going to give to Esau? Well, first, notice how they are to begin their message. Thus says your servant Jacob, Notice how Jacob begins the conversation by stating that he is Esau's servant. Jacob is beginning to right the wrong that he had committed years earlier by stealing Esau's birthright. He begins by acknowledging Esau's rightful place, and so he takes the first step in giving up the rights that he stole, trusting God to fulfill his promise. And so you'll see that he repeatedly refers to Esau as his lord and himself as Esau's servant. Jacob believes that Esau has now hated him for 20 years. And so he now wants to show respect to Esau, hoping to remove some of the hate from his heart. Jacob also tries to explain why he hasn't tried to make peace with his brother over the last 20 years, telling him that he's been with Laban all this time. But notice that he does tactfully leave out the reason he went to Laban's in the first place, which was to flee Esau, who wanted to kill him. But Jacob's message then transitions to describe the wealth that he has acquired, maybe hinting that he has the ability to compensate Esau if he needs to, to sort of pay him off. Verses 6 through 8 continue. And the messengers return to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob sent his messengers as a means to gather some intelligence in his preparation to meet Esau. Well, the messengers returned with an update for Jacob, all right, but their message is that Esau is on his way. He's coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. It says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Yeah, I bet he was, because it appears that Esau has also obtained intelligence about Jacob's movements, and he's coming to meet him. Notice that they don't say, your Lord is coming to meet you, which is how Jacob instructed them to address Esau. They say, your brother is coming to meet you. Now when they say he is coming to meet you, the Hebrew phrase for coming to meet that's used here can either mean as friends or enemies. And so Jacob can't be sure which it is. But the fact that he's bringing 400 men with him, that's a bad sign. Because that was about the standard size of a militia back then. Remember, Abraham took 318 men against a group of kings when he rescued Lot. And so this isn't a good sign. It doesn't sound good at all to Jacob and he's terrified so out of fear Jacob divides his people into two camps he can't just retreat because then that would have violated the non-aggression treaty and the boundary agreement that he had just made with Laban not to mention that he's traveling with women and small children and so all he can really do here is try to minimize his losses which is why he says If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. In other words, Jacob is hoping to save at least part of his family. Verses 9-12 through continue. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude." So again, Jacob is fearful. He's in great distress here. And so he begins to cry out to God. And what we see in these verses is actually the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis. Jacob is finally developing a relationship with God. And so perhaps he can also develop a right relationship with his brother Esau. In Jacob's prayer here, he actually admits that he's not worthy of all the love and mercy that God has shown him. This is an important step in Jacob's spiritual maturity. His confession acknowledges that he's unworthy and he's undeserving. Just an observation, but how many of us today could say this exact same thing and it still apply to each of us? For us to admit to God that we are also undeserving of all that he's done for us. But Jacob then pleads for God to deliver him from his brother Esau, whom he fears, Jacob says that he's afraid for his children and for his wives if they are attacked. Now just think how much more Jacob is tormented by his own conscience here. Knowing that something he did 20 years ago may now very well result in his family being attacked. That must truly be an awful feeling, just having one of such regret and such anguish. And so he does all that he can. He splits up his camp in hopes of saving some of them, and then he goes to God in prayer. I think Jacob is doing exactly what many of us would have done in that same situation, but I also think that we already do what Jacob is doing to some degree. I mean, we sometimes go to God in prayer as a last resort. After all of our efforts have failed or have been insufficient, then we reach out, and then we cry out to God. You see, We kind of get the order backwards. I mean, why is it that we don't seek God first? For some of us, the sad truth is that if we didn't have difficulties come into our lives that we couldn't handle, God might not ever hear from us, or at least only occasionally. You think about that for just a moment. All you parents out there, how would you feel if the only time you heard from your children was when they needed something or when they were in trouble? How would that make you feel? But Jacob continues here, and he says, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. It's like he's sort of reminding God of God's promise to be with him and to protect him. And in a way, he's sort of telling God, Look, you're the one who told me to go back, and now look. And so, Jacob here is sort of petitioning God, not based on his own merit, but based on God's own promise to him. But this does bring up an important question or maybe just an observation, but why did Jacob feel the need to remind God of his promise to protect him? Did he not yet fully trust God? Did he have some lingering doubts? And I think it should maybe bring a little comfort to all of us that even Jacob appears to have had some doubts here, some worries, some anxieties even though he knew that God had made him a promise. I mean, that should comfort all of us who have ever had any doubts. The reality of life is that we live in a world full of uncertainty and pain, suffering, loss. And when we're going through those tough times, it's natural to ask questions, to question God, to ask why. I mean, even the great men of the Bible, the men who knew God and were close to God, they cried out and they questioned God. Psalm 10.1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44 says, Why do you sleep, O Lord? Why do you hide your face, ignoring our affliction and distress? And just think about Job for a minute. Do you think he may have had some serious questions for God after being a faithful servant to God, but then losing everything? You see, it's not just you that has questions. And it's okay to have questions. But remember this, Job never received an answer from God as to why. And you may not either. And just like Job, God may require you to simply trust in his wisdom. To trust that there is a greater purpose and plan that you can't understand in the present moment. But we continue with verses 13-21 through which read, And so we stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Two hundred female goats and twenty male goats. Two hundred ewes and twenty rams. Thirty milking camels and their calves. Forty cows and ten bulls. Twenty female donkeys and ten male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me. And put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you to whom do you belong and where are you going and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau and moreover he's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him and you shall say moreover your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So what's all this about? Jacob begins to gather gifts to present to Esau, and his plan is to try to pacify his brother with free gifts. And a total of 550 animals is a very large gift, a fitting gift for a servant his Lord to whom he owes his life and so this is a fitting tribute in recognition of the giver's subordinate status but notice also how Jacob ordered the gifts he didn't send them all at once but he spaced them out there's an arrangement of presentation here a, a series of increasing value Jacob here he's trying to make a positive psychological impact on Esau hoping that Esau will just be overwhelmed by everything And so he presents him with the gifts in the most dramatic way possible. He presents them in waves or droves. And Esau has time to check out the gift, to listen to the message of the servants, and then the next wave of gifts arrive. And this happens over and over. But by doing it this way, Jacob is simply hoping to gradually overwhelm Esau with the sheer size and the generosity of the gifts, hoping that this will pacify Esau enough to receive him and forgive him. And that brings us now to the last few verses of this chapter and this strange episode where Jacob wrestles with a mysterious being. Verses 22 through 32 read, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Okay, so let's rewind just a bit. Jacob decides to transfer his entire camp across the river at night, which was difficult and was considered very dangerous in ancient times, particularly with a river like this one, which is believed to be the Zarkah, the Blue River, which is about 20 miles north of the Dead Sea, and it has very steep banks on both sides. And so to cross that with a large party, especially at night, it was only done when there was a great sense of urgency or a great need. But after Jacob does this, he is left utterly alone. Alone in the dead of the night, with no one to help him, nobody to come rescue him. And if we look at this through sort of a theological perspective, Jacob must face God alone with no possessions, no protection, just him and God. And the reality is, that's what each of us must do as well. Facing God, accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ, it cannot be done by someone else on your behalf. Your sweet grandmother can't do it for you. Your parents, your best friend, they can't do it for you either. You have to make that decision yourself. But verse 24 tells us that a man wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day. It's only later that we learn that this invisible man, this invisible deity, was actually God. So not only is Jacob about to face Esau, he now faces this strange encounter with this mysterious being. And it tells us that when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So God had apparently come to Jacob on some form of equal footing. I mean, some people think it may have been a a sort of theophany, a pre-incarnate Christ. We're not told exactly. But in either case, once again, we see Jacob's strength as this divine being, after wrestling and struggling with Jacob all night, is still not able to overcome him by sheer force as his equal. And so, he resorts to merely touching Jacob's hip socket, dislocating it. Now, some commentators believe that his hip wasn't actually dislocated, but maybe just severely strained. And they say that because they argue, look, Jacob would not have even been able to limp after that if his hip was out of socket. But either way, whatever was done, this results in Jacob's strength being neutralized. Jacob can no longer wrestle as he'd been doing before. He can no longer fight and all he can do now is merely hold on. This being then tells Jacob, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob recognizes that he's in the presence of a divine being, and he demands a blessing from him. He's physically broken, but still, he will not give up. So what started as a battle of physicality now turns to words. And Jacob will prevail Not by natural strength, but with prayer. Quite the lesson right there for you and I. Because it seems like way too often, again, we go to prayer as a last resort when everything that we have tried has already failed. And then, we finally turn to God for help with those things that we couldn't control or handle on our own. And again, it just seems like maybe this is backwards. That it should actually work the other way around. But we come now to the heart of the matter. When it says, and he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. That question, What is your name? It's a rhetorical question, of course, but it forces Jacob to consider his name and what it means the deceiver. It forces Jacob to own up to his devious past, to admit his guilt. And if he's going to embrace a new name and a new life with fresh beginnings, he must recognize and admit his past. And then we have some of the heaviest words in the Old Testament in verse 28 when God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Now the Hebrew actually reads, it shall no more be said when addressing him as Jacob. And it indicates a spiritual change, a sort of spiritual metamorphosis. Jacob's new name represents a change from a deceiver, a supplanter, into a prevailer. And up until now, he's prevailed over people by deception and trickery. But now, he'll prevail with God. And in his dealings with people, no longer through his physical strength, but by his words. And he still has a desire to prevail, but his desire is now properly oriented. This new name reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Which says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what is happening here with Jacob. He has now come face to face with God. He's encountered God, struggled with God, and he's been blessed by God. And Jacob will become a new person with a new name and a new perspective and a new destiny. God renames Jacob Israel. The name Israel comes from two words, Yisra meaning struggle and El meaning God. And so Israel means struggle with God. The name Israel is associated with struggle and triumph in the face of overwhelming odds. And God tells him that he struggled with God and with men and he's prevailed. Jacob struggled with Esau, he struggled with his father Isaac, and he struggled with Laban and he has overcome. And now he struggled with God. And by clinging to God, Jacob overcomes in the face of tremendous adversity. And God rewards his sincere commitment to the blessing. Jacob had feared for his family and for his descendants. And now he can be assured that he will become the patriarch of a nation named Israel. And again, in verse 29, Jacob asking, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? In Judges 13 Manoah asked the angel of God, What is your name? To which the angel replies, Why do you ask my name? Which is the same response we see here. In both cases, their answer suggests that the person asking has not yet fully realized who they're speaking with. And their response is sort of like asking, Don't you realize who I am? And it's only later that they fully realize that they've encountered the deity. It's interesting. It was only after the resurrection did it finally sink in for the disciples. Even though they experienced Jesus in person, they fully believed he was the Messiah. Still, much of what he taught them, it didn't fully register until after his resurrection. We also see that Moses asked a similar question of God at the burning bush, but he doesn't receive a name. God merely replies, I am what I am, which basically means, I exist, or to be, I am. You see, the pagan gods all had names, and so it would be normal to ask for God's name. But what name would do God justice? What sort of name would describe God? No matter how you choose to describe God, it comes up short. Because the reality is, for some things we experience or see in our everyday life, there are truly no words that can fully capture the moment. And any words we try to use to explain to someone, they just seem to fall short of fully communicating what we felt or what we experienced. I mean, it can be something as simple as a beautiful sunset or the birth of a new baby into the world. Whether it's love or beauty or a sense of being in just complete awe or overwhelmed by something, sometimes words just fall short. Words alone cannot do justice to what we are attempting to describe. Again, there are just simply some things in life that cannot be described adequately by using words. They must be experienced. And this certainly applies to God. And so, it's like God is saying, Look, you wouldn't understand if I explained it anyway, and so all you need to know right now is that I exist. So, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The Hebrew word Peniel literally means the face of God. And so, as we bring this chapter to a close, I think it's important to pause and consider a couple of things. First, as we have seen with Jacob's journey and in his wrestling with God, God's presence doesn't necessarily mean that we will have no difficulties in life, no conflicts. Second, when we stop wrestling with God and we simply cling to him, hold on to him, we might discover that he has been there for our good all along. It reminds me of Christ's promise in Matthew 28:20, 20 when he said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And lastly, just one more takeaway that I think could apply to each of us is that it's only after Jacob is broken that he's able to prevail. It's only after he's been physically broken, when he loses his physical strength, that he prevails through prayer. After God injured his hip, he's left with nothing else to do but simply cling to God. It sounds a lot like what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, talking about leaning on Christ rather than himself when he said, When I am weak, then I am strong.